Hey there, welcome to Stories from the Mortuary. I'm your host, Alani Santiago, here to administer your daily dose of death. It's midterms again. I feel like I was just taking spring midterms and now it's already time for summer midterms. That being said, until summer semester is over in July, episodes are still going to be released irregularly. Today's episode is another story about how a child was failed by the systems meant to help her. This case inspired a 2002 episode of Law & Order titled Born Again. I also want to shout out to my friend Katie for introducing me to another referential piece of media called Petscop. Petscop is a YouTube horror web series by Tony Domenico, made to resemble a YouTube Let's Play series. The videos follow Paul, the protagonist, exploring and documenting a supposedly long-lost PlayStation video game titled Petscop. Tony Domenico put deliberate references to this case in the series. He later said that he regretted putting so many references to a real case, but I think it ended up prompting people to look into the story behind it, which is ultimately a good thing. If you decide to check out Petscop, just know that this series isn't about the case we're talking about today, it just references it in the first half of the series. Some examples, which may give you some clues about today's story, are the inclusion of the names Newmaker and Tiara. The word quitter is also seen in the series, including an area called the Quitter's Room. There's also a lot of mentions of rebirthing, including the repeated question, do you remember being born? On that note, I want to give a trigger warning for domestic abuse and child abuse. But before we get into today's story, I do need your help finding another missing Indigenous woman. Heather Leanne Cameron was last seen in Shasta County, California on August 18, 2012. She was heading to the Keswick Dam, a remote area about 20 minutes outside of Reading, with her ex-boyfriend Daniel Lusby. That day, starting at 2.50 p.m., she made three 911 calls from the vicinity of Keswick Dam off Highway Vehicle Park using Daniel's phone. Heather said she'd been drugged with heroin and needed assistance. A male voice could be heard in the background of the call. The area has steep hills and canyons and poor phone reception. No one ever saw or heard from Heather again. Her estranged husband reported her missing two weeks after she was last seen. Authorities launched an extensive search but turned up no sign of her. Daniel has formally been interviewed by police about Heather's case three times. He told them that he and Heather had gotten separated and she had his phone on her when they parted ways. He's never been charged in her disappearance, but is considered a person of interest. His phone has never been recovered. Heather may be driving a gray four-door 2003 Chevrolet Silverado pickup truck with the California license plate number 8Z75740. In spite of her substance abuse problems, she regularly visited her four young children and kept in touch with their fathers. She's considered missing under suspicious circumstances, and her case remains unsolved. Heather has brown hair and brown eyes. She's 5'6 and weighs 115 pounds. She may use her maiden name, Holler, and some agencies refer to as Heather Cameron Holler. She has a tribal tattoo of flowers on her back, a tattoo of a girl on her left calf, and an unfinished tattoo on her right thigh. She's a member of the Grand Ronde Indian Tribe. If you have any information on Heather's whereabouts, please contact the Shasta County Sheriff's Department at 530-245-6025. Candace Tiara Elmore was born November 19, 1989 in Lincolnton, North Carolina. Her mother, Angela, was 18, and Candace was her second child, but the first she kept to raise. Angela had intermittently spent years in foster care and gave birth to a boy when she was 16 and still herself a foster child. That child was given up for adoption, due in part because Angela had been designated a Willie M. child. In North Carolina, this is a child with a diagnosed mental illness and an order for continuation of social services beyond the usual age of 18. She had two placements in group homes for emotionally disturbed children and had apparently displayed outbursts of violence. Angela was interested in replacing the baby she had put up for adoption. At 17, she married 23-year-old Todd Elmore from Winston-Salem, who had a record of petty criminality. Angela's pregnancy with Candace was planned. She read stories aloud and listened to classical music, since she heard that would be good for the baby. Angela and Todd had two more children. Angela's mother Mary and her husband David helped the young couple with the kids as much as they could, but their living situation remained unstable. 
The family lived in apartments, trailer parks, and housing projects. Angela had temp jobs here and there and briefly attended cosmetology school. Unfortunately, domestic violence was a part of Angela's daily life. There had even been a dropped assault charge against Todd. As described in a newspaper, quote, Angela was scared enough to pack up her children and leave in 1992. Candace celebrated her third birthday in a battered woman shelter. Angela saved photos of their party. Candace's wavy brown hair hangs in freshly cut bangs as she blows out candles on her grocery store cake, decorated with a wild-haired troll doll. As the eldest child, Candace took on a parental role towards her siblings. She even tried separating her parents when they fought. But concerns of abuse began rising, particularly when one of the children had scrapes across her back. Angela explained to social services that the child fell out of the insecurely latched door of the trailer, but an investigation into the family continued. In order to evade the investigation, Angela and Todd left for a different county with the kids. When they were found, the three children were placed in foster care. It was 1996 when Candace was put up for adoption. Her birth mother's parental rights were legally terminated and social workers began looking for a potential adoptive family. Candace was evaluated as unlikely to do well if left with her birth family. Instead, she was offered a second chance for a prosperous life under the care of an adoptive parent who really wanted her. In a study conducted between 2002 and 2012, it was found that children under 5 account for 49% of all total adoptions. Six-year-olds like Candace only account for about 6 or 7% of adoptions. The unfortunate truth is that potential adoptive parents seek younger children and babies. Even at six, Candace was too old. She wasn't cute or infantile anymore, just a child in need of a loving home. It was clear she suffered when she was with her birth family, and jumping from foster home to foster home certainly didn't help with her mental health and behavior as a result. One foster mother claimed that Candace's behavior caused her asthma attacks. Candace's chances of being adopted by a well-to-do family soon diminished. The constant neglect and lack of structure or stability severely affected her. Nonetheless, Jean Newmaker went through a series of steps mandated by North Carolina as she sought to adopt Candace. Jean participated in a pre-placement assessment with the help of an adoption agency. Sometimes agencies require adoptive parents to take classes to prepare for dealing with a child who suffered losses, although it's unclear if Jean took any of these classes. As a pediatric nurse at Duke University Medical Center, the adoption agency may have decided that her job provided her with the necessary training to handle Candace. By suggestion of a social services worker, Candace was seen as a good match for Jean. Soon, a visitation plan was put in place so Jean could see her on the weekends. These visits solidified how Jean felt. She wanted to adopt Candace. In June of 1996, Candace was adopted by Jean and moved into her new home. Jean took two months off from work so she could be with Candace constantly that first summer. They got along well, and they spent that time traveling together. Jean realized that when it came to school, Candace was indifferent. Jean even tried helping Candace with her homework. Things were still going fairly well until after Christmas that year, when the adoption honeymoon phase seemed to have ended. By this time, the legal adoption had been completed. Jean felt that Candace started exhibiting negative behaviors around this time, and even thought Candace might be depressed. Within two months, Candace started seeing a psychiatrist. At the time of her adoption, the North Carolina Adoption and Foster Care Network website stated, quote, all children, even infants, will have some adjustment problems. A child requires much patience, tolerance, and love. But there would be a lot of unusually serious changes made in Candace's case. Jean made arrangements for Candace's name to be legally changed as well. This is customary, but Jean decided to take it a step further by changing Candace's middle name from Tiara to Elizabeth, which is also Jean's middle name. Although her birth family were Protestant fundamentalists, she began receiving instruction in Jean's Roman Catholic faith. In North Carolina, adoptive families are typically encouraged to allow the child to stay in contact with their birth parents, as some children may have an emotional bond with them. This contact wasn't arranged for Candace, but Jean couldn't have arranged it even if she wanted. She wasn't to be given any identifying information about the birth parents, and it wasn't to be made available to Candace later. 
According to Jean, when her and Candace's honeymoon phase was over, Candace turned negative, disruptive, and enraged. Jean and Candace regularly argued at home, so she decided to seek out professional help from where she worked. Dr. Jean Spaulding from Duke University Medical Center was the first psychiatrist to see Candace, then Mai Mai Ginsberg. Apparently, Candace had been doing poorly in school. She primarily had difficulties with her attention span and struggled to focus long enough to do her schoolwork. Both Dr. Spaulding and Ginsberg diagnosed Candace with attention deficit disorder. In 1994, doctors decided all forms of attention deficit disorder would be called attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD, even if the person wasn't hyperactive. Now it's called ADHD inattentive type, or ADHD hyperactive impulsive type, or ADHD combined type. ADHD is marked by an ongoing pattern of inattention and or hyperactivity impulsivity that interferes with functioning or development. People with ADHD experience an ongoing pattern of three primary symptoms, inattention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity. Researchers aren't sure what causes ADHD, although many studies suggest that genes play a large role. Like many other disorders, ADHD probably results from a combination of factors. In addition to genetics, researchers are looking at possible environmental factors that might raise the risk of developing ADHD and are studying how brain injuries, nutrition, and social environments might play a role in ADHD. ADHD is more common in males than females, and females with it are more likely to primarily have inattention symptoms. People with ADHD often have other conditions such as learning disabilities, anxiety disorder, conduct disorder, depression, and substance use disorder. Candace was initially treated with Ritalin, but she suffered from insomnia as a side effect. Since the insomnia was negatively affecting her performance in school, Candace was switched over to Dexedrin. This medication has a specific warning against its use with children who have psychotic disorders, so presumably Candace's psychiatrist felt that psychosis had been ruled out in Candace's case. Candace had also briefly been prescribed Prozac, an antidepressant. Candace had been taking Dexedrine for a while before Jean noticed other behavior problems. These problems were in terms of lovability. To Jean, Candace was no longer a lovable child. Jean took Candace back to Duke and sought the help of Dr. Ave Lachevich, who studied ADHD. Dr. Lachevich agreed that Candace wasn't as happy as a normal kid, but given her history in foster care, it was completely understandable that she was emotionally reserved. This was Candace's defense mechanism for being through so many placements. Jean also gave Candace drug holidays in the summer, taking her off of her medications so she could eat regularly without her appetite being affected. However, by taking her off these medications for certain periods, it made some difference in her moods and behavior. Candace's second grade teacher noted that she worked really hard in class. She considered Candace to be truly invested in herself. Jean, on the other hand, remarked that she and Candace fought over homework. Another Christmas passed, and the relationship between Jean and Candace continued to deteriorate. Jean started going to a support group, but remarked how judgmental some of the other parents were. When she talked about her problems with Candace, other parents in the group told her that they wouldn't take that behavior. Jean invited these people to come to her home and experience what she does on a daily basis, and then tell her how she's supposed to deal with the behavior. Candace was treated for her ADHD by Dr. Lachevich through 1998, but Jean was ultimately dissatisfied by the results. No one else around Candace saw these problems, but Jean claimed she saw Candace's behavior worsen. Dr. Lachevich referred Candace to Dr. John March for a second opinion. Candace and Jean met with Dr. March on May 26, 1999. In his opinion, he felt that, in addition to ADHD, Candace suffered from Oppositional Defiant Disorder. Oppositional Defiant Disorder, ODD, is a type of childhood disruptive behavior disorder that primarily involves problems with the self-control of emotions and behaviors. According to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders 5th edition, or DSM-5, the main feature of ODD is a persistent pattern of angry or irritable mood, argumentative or defiant behavior, or vindictiveness towards others. Dr. March additionally diagnosed Candace with post-traumatic stress disorder. 
Post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, is a mental health disorder that some people develop after they experience or see a traumatic event. The traumatic event may be life-threatening such as combat, a natural disaster, a car accident, or even sexual assault. But sometimes the event is not necessarily a dangerous one. For example, the sudden, unexpected death of a loved one can also cause PTSD. It's normal to feel afraid during and after a traumatic situation. The fear triggers a fight, flight, fawn, or freeze response. This is the body's way of helping to protect itself from possible harm. It causes changes such as the release of certain hormones and increases in alertness, blood pressure, heart rate, and breathing. There are four types of PTSD symptoms, though they're not the same for everyone. Re-experiencing symptoms are those where something reminds the person of the trauma and they feel that fear again. This can manifest as flashbacks, nightmares, and frightening thoughts. Avoidance symptoms occur when situations or people that trigger memories of the traumatic event are avoided. For example, if someone got into a car accident, they may stop driving. This also includes avoiding thoughts or feelings related to the traumatic event. Arousal and reactivity symptoms may cause anxiety such as being easily startled, having difficulty sleeping, and having angry outbursts. Cognition and mood symptoms are negative changes in beliefs and feelings. They include trouble remembering important things about the traumatic event, negative thoughts about oneself or the world, feeling blame and guilt, and even trouble concentrating. A healthcare provider who has experience helping people with mental illnesses can diagnose PTSD. The provider will do a mental health screening and may also do a physical exam. To get a diagnosis of PTSD, the patient must have all of these symptoms for at least one month, at least one re-experiencing symptom, at least one avoidance symptom, at least two arousal and reactivity symptoms, and at least two cognition and mood symptoms. The diagnosis of PTSD came as a response to Candace's early life experiences. It was known that Candace was neglected by her birth parents, but no one knew to what extent Candace may have been abused. Dr. March noted, quote, Much of the functional impairment Candace experiences that appears as a result of PTSD is associated with avoidance, which in turn is most powerfully predicted by a set of traumatic reminders that include people who look like old family members, commands that appear to Candace to be coercive, and most importantly, implicit abandonment, separation threat cues. It was Dr. March's opinion that Candace wouldn't make much progress in psychotherapy without medication. In addition to the Dexedrin, she was then prescribed Zoloft for her PTSD. Candace began to see Mary Sue Sherney, a psychotherapist at the Durham Center for Child and Family Health, in June of 1999. Two months later, she received care from an additional psychiatrist, Dr. Molly Froelich. Dr. Froelich used a standardized child behavior checklist and two trauma checklists as guidance for her choice of medications. While Dr. Froelich agreed with Dr. March's diagnosis, she considered PTSD to be the primary problem. She tried to replace the Zoloft with Tenex, an alternative treatment for ADHD which hadn't been approved for use in children under the age of 12. In hopes of relieving Candace's insomnia, Dr. Froelich also switched Candace to Effexor, which is used for depression and anxiety. There were also talks of a new possible diagnosis for Candace being bipolar disorder. Bipolar disorder, which was formerly called manic depressive illness or manic depression, is a mental illness that causes unusual shifts in a person's mood, energy, activity levels, and concentration. These shifts can make it difficult to carry out day-to-day tasks. There's three types of bipolar disorder. All three types involve clear changes in mood, energy, and activity levels. These moods range from periods of extremely up, elated, irritable, or energized behavior, known as manic episodes, to very down, sad, indifferent, or hopeless periods, known as depressive episodes. Less severe manic periods are known as hypomanic episodes. Bipolar 1 disorder is defined by manic episodes that last for at least seven days, nearly every day for most of the day, or by manic symptoms that are so severe that the person needs immediate medical care. Usually, depressive episodes occur as well, typically lasting at least two weeks. Episodes of depression with mixed features, having depressive symptoms and manic symptoms at the same time, are also possible. Experiencing four or more episodes of mania or depression within one year is called rapid cycling. Bipolar 2 disorder is defined by a pattern of depressive episodes and hypomanic episodes. 
The hypomanic episodes are less severe than the manic episodes in bipolar 1. Cyclothymic disorder, also called cyclothymia, is defined by recurring hypomanic and depressive symptoms that aren't intense enough or don't last long enough to qualify as hypomanic or depressive episodes. Sometimes, a person might experience symptoms of bipolar disorder that don't match the three categories, and this is referred to as other specified and unspecified bipolar and related disorders. Dr. Froelich changed out Candace's medication and prescribed her Risperdal. This medication is an antipsychotic meant to help with apathy. When given Risperdal at night, Candace had nightmares. It took some tinkering, but with some adjustments, she began sleeping better than she ever had. Jean felt that the Risperdal was helpful, but continued to seek additional sources of treatment. Jean felt that traditional psychotherapy wasn't enough to help with Candace's issues. However, at the same time, Candace responded well to the Risperdal, and it seemed to make the most positive change in her behavior. When Jean and Candace visited Dr. Froelich on October 15, 1999, Candace was cheerful, talkative, compliant, and affectionate to Jean. Jean received reports from the Social Services Agency in December of 1999. Candace's younger sister, Chelsea, who was in an adoptive home with her brother, Michael, had tried to choke him, and the adoption was being disrupted. Candace was told about what happened, and it was upsetting. It was just a reminder that adoptive families aren't necessarily forever families. Why this was ever told to Candace, who was dealing with PTSD, is highly questionable. It was just a small glimpse into the nature of Candace's emotional experiences, illustrating the lack of empathy and insight in those around her. On February 4th, 2000, Candace saw Dr. Froelich again. Jean reported that Candace displayed renewed rage, negativity, and irritability. By now, Jean took Candace to her psychotherapist, Mary Sue Sherney, less often. Instead, she started taking Candace to an attachment therapist. John Bowlby, who's credited for the origin of attachment theory, was greatly influenced by ethological theory, but especially by Conrad Lorenz's study of imprinting. Lorenz showed that attachment was innate in young ducklings and therefore had a survival value. He took a large clutch of goose eggs and kept them until they were about to hatch out. Half the eggs were then placed under a goose mother, while Lorenz kept the other half hatched in an incubator, with Lorenz making sure he was the first moving object the newly hatched goslings encountered. When the geese hatched, Lorenz imitated a mother duck's quacking sound, upon which the young birds regarded him as their mother and followed him accordingly. The other group followed the mother goose. Lorenz found that the geese follow the first moving object they see. This process is known as imprinting, and suggests that attachment is innate and programmed genetically. As humans evolved, it would have been the babies who stayed close to their mothers that would have survived to have children of their own. Bowlby hypothesized that both infants and mothers had evolved a biological need to stay in contact with each other. Bowlby believed that attachment behaviors such as proximity-seeking are instinctive and will be activated by any conditions that seem to threaten the achievement of proximity, such as separation, insecurity, and fear. Bowlby also postulated that the fear of strangers represents an important survival mechanism, built in by nature. Babies are born with the tendency to display certain innate behaviors called social releases, which help ensure proximity and contact with the mother or attachment figure. These species-specific behaviors include crying, smiling, and crawling. These attachment behaviors initially function like fixed action patterns and share the same function. The infant produces innate social releaser behaviors such as crying and smiling that stimulate caregiving from adults. The determinant of attachment is care and responsiveness. Bowlby's monotropic theory of attachment suggests attachment is important for a child's survival. Monotropy is the idea that a child has an innate need to attach to one main attachment figure. Attachment behaviors in both babies and their caregivers have evolved through natural selection. This means infants are biologically programmed with innate behaviors that ensure that attachment occurs. Although Bowlby didn't rule out the possibility of other attachment figures for a child, he did believe that there should be a primary bond which was more important than any other, usually the mother. Other attachments may develop in a hierarchy below this. An infant may therefore have a primary monotropy attachment to its mother, 
and below her, the hierarchy of attachments may include its father, siblings, grandparents, etc. Bowlby believes that this argument is qualitatively different from any subsequent attachments. He argues that the relationship with the mother is somehow different altogether from other relationships. These signals that elicit proximity to the caregiver were put to the test in Mary Ainsworth's experiment. Ainsworth and her colleagues discovered three major patterns that infants attach to the primary caregivers from their strange situation procedure. An infant was put into an unfamiliar environment with their mother and was free to explore the environment. A stranger entered the room and gradually approached the infant. The mother then left the room, returning after the infant spent some time alone with the stranger. Ainsworth and colleagues observed how comfortable each infant was physically farther away from the mother in an unfamiliar environment, how each infant interacted with the stranger, and how each infant greeted the mother upon her return. Based on the observations, they sorted the infants into three attachment styles, secure, anxious, and avoidant. Attachment styles refer to the particular way in which an individual relates to other people. The style of attachment is formed at the very beginning of life, and once established, it stays and plays out in how people relate in intimate relationships and how people parent their children. The concept involves one's confidence in the availability of the attachment figure for use as a secure base from which one can freely explore the world when not in distress, and a safe haven from which one can seek support, protection, and comfort in times of distress. Bowlby describes secure attachment as the capacity to connect well and securely in relationships with others, while also having the capacity for autonomous action as situationally appropriate. Secure attachment is characterized by trust, an adaptive response to being abandoned, and the belief that one is worthy of love. An infant with a secure attachment is characterized as actively seeking and maintaining proximity with the mother, especially during the reunion episode. The infant may or may not be friendly with the stranger, but always showed more interest in interacting with the mother. Additionally, during the same situation, the infant tended to be slightly distressed during separation from the mother, but the infant rarely cried. Ainsworth and colleagues interpreted infants who were securely attached to their mothers showed less anxiousness and more positive attitudes toward the relationship, and were likely because they believed in their mother's responsiveness towards their needs. Anxious or ambivalent attachment relationships are characterized by a concern that others won't reciprocate one's desire for intimacy. This is caused when an infant learned that their caregiver or parent is unreliable and doesn't consistently provide responsive care towards their needs. An anxiously attached infant is characterized as being somewhat resistant and having mixed feelings toward the mother. The infant often demonstrated signs of resisting interactions with the mother, especially during the strange situation reunion episode. However, once contact with the mother was gained, the infant also showed strong intentions to maintain such contact. Overall, ambivalent infants often displayed maladaptive behaviors throughout the strange situation. Ainsworth and colleagues found ambivalent infants to be anxious and insecure about their mother's responsiveness, and their mothers were observed to lack the fine sense of timing in responding to the infant's needs. As adults, those with an anxious, preoccupied attachment style are overly concerned with the uncertainty of a relationship. They hold a negative working model of self and a positive working model of others. Children with avoidant attachment styles tend to avoid interaction with the caregiver and show no distress during separation. This may be because the parent has ignored attempts to be intimate and the child may internalize the belief that they can't depend on this or any other relationship. An infant with an avoidant attachment was characterized as displaying little to no tendency to seek proximity with the mother. The infant showed no distress during separation from the mother, interacted with the stranger similarly to how they would interact with the mother, and showed slight signs of avoidance like turning away and avoiding eye contact when reunited with the mother. Ainsworth and colleagues interpreted infants' avoidance behaviors as a defense mechanism against the mother's own rejecting behaviors, such as being uncomfortable with physical contact or being more easily angered by the infants. In 1986, Mary Main and Judith Solomon discovered that a sizable proportion of infants didn't fit into the secure, anxious, or avoidant based on their behaviors in the strange situation experiment. They categorized these infants as having a disorganized attachment type. 
Disorganized attachment is classified by children who display sequences of behaviors that lack readily observable goals or intentions, including obviously contradictory behaviors or freezing of movements. Main and Solomon found that the parents of disorganized infants often had unresolved attachment-related traumas, which caused the parents to display either frightened or frightening behaviors, resulting in the disorganized infants being confused or forcing them to rely on someone they were afraid of at the time. According to Bowlby, later relationships are likely to be a continuation of early attachment styles because the behavior of the infant's primary attachment figure promotes an internal working model of relationships, which leads the infant to expect the same in later relationships. In other words, there's continuity between the early attachment experiences and later relationships. This is known as the continuity hypothesis. About six weeks later, Candace saw Dr. Froelich again. No violent actions of any kind were reported. In fact, Candace was described as acting infantile, even cuddling in Jean's lap and talking in a baby voice. At first, she pushed away and resisted the blood pressure cuff, but later she became talkative and didn't want to leave. She wasn't at all aggressive, and according to Dr. Froelich's notes, Candace showed signs of attachment and affection. It's important to note, however, that in Dr. Froelich's notes, these specific signs weren't specified, and it's questionable whether a child of Candace's age could have specific attachment behaviors that would be readily observable in such a setting. According to Dr. Froelich, Candace acted like a younger child and did things not seen in children who have trouble complying. There is concern about the reported tantrums at home and their indication of primary attachment issue or dysfunctional attachment. During this visit, Dr. Froelich was told that Candace would be seeing an attachment therapist in Colorado the next month. Interestingly enough, Dr. Froelich wasn't asked for any of Candace's records by the Colorado therapists. In between all of these therapy sessions, Candace still attended school regularly and had friends around the neighborhood. What was so troubling was that there was a strange contrast between the positive reports of adult neighbors versus Jean's claims that Candace had been sexually aggressive with other children and threatened them. If this aggression ever did occur, no one other than Jean was aware of it. Even in school, Candace had no behavior problems reported by either teachers or other students. Candace could have easily been a bully if she wanted to. She was bigger than the other kids in her grade because she was a year older, having lost a year due to foster care placement. She also had a lot of street smarts from her experiences in foster care, as opposed to the sheltered lives of the kids who came from well-to-do families in Durham. Despite this, Candace was actually the complete opposite of a bully in school. She protected smaller kids and students in wheelchairs. Although she started the year fairly aloof, she became comfortable and secure in her friendships by the time spring rolled around. Candace may not have been an academic high achiever in the first grade, but she also wasn't a failure as Jean insisted she was. In fact, Jean's active involvement with Candace in the school was much approved by the school staff. They gave Jean credit for helping Candace get through a difficult transition. But despite Jean's complaints, Candace appeared quite normal to everyone else. The staff at the school didn't even know that she was taking medication to treat her ADHD. Second grade was more difficult for Candace, but she still worked hard. Her teacher, Miss Pinkerton, fondly remembered having Candace in her class. Candace did have trouble following in class, but her reading level was so advanced that she later tutored a younger student in reading. The following year, Jean wrote to the school asking for special accommodations for Candace. In Jean's opinion, Candace had a learning disorder associated with the ADHD she was being treated for. The school paid closer attention to Candace's academic performance and noticed that her grades were slipping despite intervention in the classroom. Accommodations for disabilities such as learning disorders are quite common. One example of academic accommodations include having extra time to take a test. These accommodations are required by law under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, but decisions about accommodations are based on professional assessments, not the opinions of parents. Because of this, the school arranged an outside evaluation by Dr. Andrew Short. Due to her results on the evaluation, Candace wasn't eligible to receive full accommodations during her year in third grade. Dr. Short did note, however, that she was being treated for ODD. Now Candace was on an academic watch list, but her teacher gave her some accommodations for her homework and a classmate buddy to help her focus during lectures. Unfortunately, none of this seemed to help. 
She worked below grade level the whole year. Candace had a vivid imagination, but she struggled to put words on paper. According to Jean, a significant source of tension at home was how much they fought over how to do Candace's homework. Candace completed more testing that year, and it was revealed that her reading hadn't progressed. It was at this point that she qualified for specialized accommodation. In order to stimulate progress in Candace's education, the school created an Individual Educational Plan, or IEP. Candace was observed at school and received a common diagnosis, a learning disorder involving auditory processing problems. The initial IEP was created so that Candace had resource room work, school activities carried on outside the classroom. This would have allowed Candace to learn in a smaller group of students. This ultimately displeased Jean, and she asked for Candace to be taught in a regular classroom instead. The new IEP permitted work specialized for her learning disability for only one hour each week. Candace began fourth grade with an IEP requested by Jean that placed Candace in a regular classroom. Her academic achievement was adequate under these circumstances. Her grades were mostly C's and D's with a couple B's. She excelled in creative subjects like art, but struggled with math and spelling. Jean later claimed that Candace was at risk of having to repeat fourth grade, but that was simply untrue. Candace's fourth grade teacher never had disciplinary problems with her and remarked that Candace was pleasant and respectful. She was also very social at school, having lots of friends, hugging her teacher, and being a leader amongst the girls. She even went to sleepovers and hosted a few of her own. It became abundantly clear that there was a serious lack of coordination between the parties involved in Candace's life. The psychiatrists and psychotherapists didn't report their findings to the school, and only one asked for teachers' reports or evidence of school performance and behavior. The school had no access to psychiatric information unless Jean gave it to them. Traditionally, a social worker from the school or the county would become responsible for collecting and passing on information as needed. It seemed that in this case, Jean had become her own caseworker. Maybe it was her status as a pediatric nurse that made the professionals rely on her. She entered into decisions about Candace that would have never been permitted to Candace's birth mother. Jean's active presence in the professional system twisted decisions in a way that caused serious failure, one that might have well been prevented if she hadn't mixed the role of professional with that of mother. Neither Candace's psychiatrist nor the school diagnosed her as having a disorder related to emotional attachment. Dr. Froelich looked out for attachment issues, but even she was primarily concerned that PTSD was the primary source of Candace's problems. Not one of the professionals involved suggested there could be a special treatment to make her form an emotional attachment to Jean. In December of 1998, Jean learned about a workshop taking place the following months. She traveled 50 miles west to High Point, North Carolina. The workshop was a presentation on attachment therapy given at the Guilford Attachment Center. The DSM has diagnostic criteria for a wide range of disorders. The workshop Jean attended discussed reactive attachment disorder, RAD, a childhood disorder described in the DSM. Reactive attachment disorder is a trauma and stressor-related condition of early childhood caused by social neglect and maltreatment. Affected children may have difficulty forming emotional attachments to others, show a decreased ability to experience positive emotion, can't seek or accept physical or emotional closeness, and may react violently when held cuddled, or comforted. Behaviorally, affected children are unpredictable, difficult to console, and difficult to discipline. Moods fluctuate erratically, and children may seem to live in a fight, flight, or freeze mode. Most have a strong desire to control their environment and make their own decisions. The diagnostic criteria for RAD in the dsm 4 is less precise than those given for other disorders. Some symptoms of RAD were possibly applicable to Candace, but others weren't. Not much is known about Candace's life or behavior before five, but an accurate RAD diagnosis depends on information about the child's early experiences. Candace wouldn't have received an RAD diagnosis based on the diagnostic criteria presented in the DSM-4, but the Guilford Attachment Center workshop gave Jean a checklist of behaviors that provided her with just the diagnosis she had been looking for. After the workshop, Jean signed up with the Guilford Attachment Center and attended group sessions with other parents. 
She also started taking Candace to a new kind of treatment with an attachment therapy practitioner named Norma Beheler. The treatment they started with was holding therapy. Norma and an assistant would hold Candace across their laps, immobilizing her arms. They grabbed her face, shouted at her, and instructed her to obey commands from kicking her feet to shouting answers. These were the exact coercive commands and traumatic reminders that Dr. March felt exacerbated Candace's condition. To use the attachment therapy term, Candace would become activated during the course of the holding therapy sessions. As she fought with the practitioners who restrained her, she pinched, headbutted, and spat. As Candace became more violent from her triggered trauma, Jean became more of a believer. She took Candace to High Point once a week by the end of 1999. Understandably, Candace disliked the treatment. According to Norma, Candace would lie to get out of holding therapy, saying things like she couldn't breathe and she wanted to die. But neither Norma nor Jean took Candace's expressions of pain and discomfort at face value and stopped the sessions. Jean decided Candace needed more treatment for RAD towards the end of 1999. Besides the faulty RAD diagnosis, it made complete sense why Candace wasn't improving after these sessions. Rather than helping her heal from her trauma, these sessions triggered her PTSD. Through a quick internet search, Jean found an organization of interest to her. The Association for Treatment and Training of Attachment in Children was called ATTACH for short. This organization had a conference in Alexandria, Virginia, slated for early October, and the big names of attachment therapy would be in attendance. At the ATTACH conference, Jean met Bill Goebel. Bill was an attachment therapist with a large following and a PhD from the Union Institute, an unaccredited institution in Ohio. He provided Jean with a copy of the Randolph Attachment Disorder Questionnaire created by Elizabeth Randolph, an attachment therapy practitioner from Colorado. Given how desperate Jean was to force Candace to act the way she wanted to, Jean's responses to the questionnaire produced a score that indicated a severe case of RAD in Candace. After the combination of the score and some phone discussions, Bill recommended intensive treatment by Connell Watkins in Colorado, despite never having met Candace himself. Jean made up her mind. She was taking Candace to Colorado. The trip to Colorado didn't happen instantly. The next few months were filled with applications that had to be sent to Connell and phone calls. Meanwhile, Candace was still forced to attend holding sessions at High Point, and she continued office visits with Dr. Froelich and Mary Sue Sherney, the psychotherapist. Jean's plans to take Candace to Colorado to see Connell Watkins were known by everyone involved with Candace. There were serious discrepancies between the reports from the attachment therapy practitioners versus Candace's psychiatrist. The practitioners expressed their worry to Jean and pushed her to go to Colorado earlier. They felt Candace was showing seriously threatening behavior toward Jean. They even suggested Jean not return to Durham with Candace that night because she may try to kill Jean by grabbing the steering wheel. Jean made the drive anyway because she had to work, and not one violent outburst occurred as the attachment therapy practitioners predicted. During this same time, Dr. Froelich noted that Candace didn't show any dangerous ideation whatsoever. This was only the first of a string of contradictory statements. Norma from the Guilford Attachment Center felt that on March 13, 2000, Candace was making progress and opening up about her trauma and her anger with her birth mother. Four days later, Dr. Froelich noted a definite setback in Candace after months of slow but steady improvement. There was really no way of knowing whether Candace's behavior and moods were truly erratic, or if the psychiatrist and the attachment therapy practitioner simply had different concerns. The departure date crept closer, and the support group in High Point buzzed with excitement for Jean. Members of the group who made the same trip advised Jean on where to rent a car, and they even suggested the possibility of financial reimbursement from the North Carolina Social Service Department, which further legitimized the treatment. Some members of the group advised Jean that she should stop giving Candace her dexedrine. It should be noted that this step should never be taken without consulting a physician, and even then, it should never be stopped abruptly. There's a high risk of severe withdrawal symptoms when taken in large doses or for an extended period of time, as Candace had. 
Pam Molinato was another mother who attended the group in High Point. She was exceptionally enthusiastic about an attachment therapy technique known as rebirthing. Pam felt it had been a wonderful and successful experience. It was April of 2000 when Jean and Candace made their way to a small clinic in Colorado. Connell Watkins Associates was run by Connell Watkins, an unlicensed therapist. The clinic was run out of her home in Evergreen, which wasn't far from Denver. Under Colorado law, a social worker like Connell was permitted to work without a license, but was supposed to have registered with the state, paid a fee, and attended a workshop on legal issues associated with therapy. Connell hadn't done any of this and simply operated unlicensed, untrained, and unsupervised. For insurance purposes, Connell presented herself as working under the supervision of a licensed social worker, Neil Feinberg, and used his license number. Evergreen was a small town where attachment therapy was a cottage industry, meaning it was carried out in people's homes. Connell had been involved with the Attachment Center at Evergreen, a larger organization, for a few years before leaving to start her own practice. Connell's team was small. Julie Ponder was another unlicensed therapist who had originally been trained in social work. Britta St. Clair was another staff member, and she had already spoken to Jean over the phone multiple times. Then there was Jack McDaniel. Neither Jack nor Britta had any formal training in any discipline related to psychotherapy. In fact, Jack previously worked in construction and was laid off after being injured. Connell didn't request any records from Candace's psychiatrist in North Carolina. On Candace's second day in Colorado, she was seen for about 10 minutes by Dr. John Alston, a psychiatrist who had been long affiliated with Connell. He concluded that Candace fit the standard profile for many of the children brought in. According to Dr. Alston, Candace was superficially compliant and cooperative. He felt that, like most children who came to Evergreen, she was telling him what he wanted to hear in a very much pain-avoidant and self-protective sense. On the basis of Dr. Alston's interview with Jean about Candace's behavior at home, he diagnosed Candace with bipolar disorder, a diagnosis which had actually been considered by Dr. Froelich in North Carolina. Dr. Alston agreed that there were aspects of PTSD, but ruled out the ODD previously diagnosed and disagreed entirely on the ADHD diagnosis. Dr. Alston didn't review any of Candace's psychiatric or school records, and he wasn't aware of Candace's auditory processing disorder diagnosis from her school. The major outcome of the visit with Dr. Alston resulted in a change to Candace's medication, gradually increasing the Risperdal and eliminating other medications. This is all a precursor to the intensive, two-week attachment therapy treatment that was going to take place. It's important to distinguish between psychotherapy, which is a form of counseling commonly used by therapists, versus attachment therapy. The focus of psychotherapy is communication between patient and therapist as the essential aspect of treatment. Candace's treatment involved some talking, but its emphasis was on transformation rather than communication. The therapist believed that physical and emotional experiences would cause Candace to change, without her needing to understand her past or present in an intellectual way. This transformational approach assumes that the patient only needs to cooperate, not to understand what's happening, in order to be cured. Another discrepancy occurs in the use of physical touch. Psychotherapists are usually extremely cautious about physically touching a patient. Touch may be used as a mode of comfort and communication when working with young children, but the contact is as respectful as possible, especially if there's a history of sexual or physical abuse. Little, if any, physical contact is used with a child older than seven. The therapists in the specific program for attachment therapy considered touch and physical restraint to be major tools for treatment. Connell Watkins and Julie Ponder, Candace's therapists, videotaped their sessions with Candace. They started off with holding therapy sessions, which Candace had previously done in North Carolina. Sometimes, Connell was the only person restraining Candace and at other times, Jack McDaniel helped her. To perform holding therapy, Connell sat on one end of a sofa. Candace laid back with her head in Connell's arms or lap, and her legs extended along the sofa. If Jack was there, Candace's body would be across his lap. Her arms would be pinned, and sometimes her legs would be sat on. On one day, Candace had two holding therapy sessions. One was 20 minutes, and the other was 49 minutes. 
In these two sessions, Connell covered or grabbed Candace's face 48 times, bounced or shook her head 83 times, and shouted into her face 68 times. In another set of holding therapy sessions, which lasted about two hours, Connell covered or grabbed Candace's face 90 times. She yelled into Candace's face 65 times and shook, jerked, or bounced Candace's head 309 times. Connell would order Candace to kick. She had to scissor kick her legs and dig her heels into the sofa until she was told to stop. If Candace spoke in a regular conversational volume, Connell demanded she shout. Whenever she was asked a question, she had to answer and keep giving answers until the desired one was given. In these recorded sessions, Connell told Candace that her actions were deliberately hateful and disobedient to Jean. Connell accused Candace of wanting Jean to die, and even threatened the possibility that Jean would abandon or institutionalize Candace. In one set of holding sessions totaling two hours, this threat was made 49 times. Connell emphasized that Jean didn't need Candace, but Candace needed Jean's care and love. Connell endlessly insulted and accused Candace, even addressing the child as jerk or little twerp. If Candace couldn't remember something, she would be accused of lying. Sometimes Jean was present, although she didn't take part in the physical restraint. During one session where Jean was present, she told Candace, quote, This is your last chance. You can be a real jerk and stay the rest of your life. I'll go home with the dogs. Am I serious about this? You won't come back to my house to have it be the way it was. This is your last chance, your very last chance. I'm having a great time. It's not hurting me. During one day of treatment, a brief holding session was followed by a session of compression therapy. Candace was placed on the floor, wrapped in sheets so only her head could move. Usually the parent lies down on top of the child, but Jean weighed 195 pounds and Candace was only 68, so sofa cushions were used to take part of Jean's weight. Jean laid on Candace and demanded eye contact. She screamed at Candace all the things she found wrong with her. This particular session lasted an hour and 42 minutes. Connell instructed Jean to scream at Candace 16 times, lick Candace's face 21 times, grab her face 25 times, threaten abandonment 26 times, and shake her head 63 times. Following the compression treatment, Jean sat in a large chair referred to as the mommy chair. She held Candace in her lap, kissing her, hugging her, and feeding her a cinnamon roll. After a week and a half of therapy, Connell decided to perform a rebirthing session with Candace. Connell anticipated the session to be mild and easy, as children had been wrapped for five minutes or less in previous rebirthing sessions. This was another reason Connell decided to initiate the rebirth. She felt everyone needed a break and this would be easier than a holding session. Julie Ponder was a therapist who was studying with Connell, although it's important to remember that Connell was unlicensed and practicing illegally. Julie described the rebirthing process to Candace. She told her that it would be like being born to the right mother instead of the mother who didn't take care of her. Julie explained that she would have plenty of air to breathe and that she would have to push really hard and reach to pull herself out. The camcorder captured everything. Candace laid down on a sheet on her left side with her feet pulled to her chest in the fetal position. Julie began to draw the corners of the sheet together like a bag, with Candace's head near the opening. Julie told Candace to imagine herself as a teeny little baby in her mother's womb, where it was warm. She asked Candace what she thought about in there, in her mother's womb. Candace responded, quote, I thought I was going to die. Jean and Connell were present along with Jack and Britta St. Clair. Jean began a speech about how she was looking forward to the birth of the baby and how nice their lives would be together. She spoke about how the baby would be safe and have a nice life. Connell interjected that both mother and child would die if the baby wasn't born. Candace was wrapped in a flannel sheet and sofa pillows had been placed on top of her. The five adults sat on the floor and surrounded her, four of them leaning on her. Jean knelt beside Candace's head. Julie asked Candace if she was ready to be born and told her to come out head first, pushing with her feet. 
It wasn't until eight long minutes into the rebirthing that Candace first expressed her inability to get out of the makeshift womb. She was crying, and she could be heard saying, I can't do it, you're pushing on my head. She screamed out, quote, I can't breathe, I can't do it. I can't do it, somebody's on top of me. Where am I supposed to come out? Somebody's on top of me. No, I can't do it. I want to die now. Please, air. The camcorder picked up her gasping breaths, and Julie remarked on how hard it is to be born. Candace sobbed and begged for the adults to stop pushing on her. Julie told her that sometimes birth takes hours, and the adults pressed down on Candace. Julie ordered her to scream, and Candace obeyed. Julie told her that she was going to die and she needed to push harder. Connell agreed and told Candace, die right now. Candace asked if she was serious, and Connell was. Candace begged and said she couldn't breathe, to which Julie replied, quote, You don't need to breathe when you're dead. You don't need air. What's it like to be dead? Candace was silent. A few minutes later, Candace was heard moaning and sobbing. Julie asked her again if she wanted to be born. Again, she said yes. Julie said, quote, Let's let her go ahead and die. It's easier if you don't have the courage to live. Candace whimpered, crying out that she had to defecate. Gagging and vomiting could be heard. When Julie asked if Candace wanted to be born, Candace said no. Julie then told her to stay in there with the feces and the vomit. Julie instructed the other adults to push harder on the pile of pillows, and Candace screamed out that she couldn't breathe. Jean mentioned that she was so excited to have this baby. She knew it was hard, but she was waiting for Candace. Julie told her to scream for her life, but there was no response. Julie pressed down harder, bracing her feet to push against Candace. Connell mentioned how miserable people are when they're around Candace. The adults talked among each other and laughed as they continued to put their weight on her. Julie teased Candace, calling her a quitter. Jean left the room as Julie and Jack pressed on the pile of cushions. They laughed after someone mentioned they needed to do a C-section. Connell said she wanted to look at the twerp and see what was going on. The adults took their weight off of the pile and removed the pillows. They untied the blanket, and Julie cried out as she uncovered Candace's lifeless face. She yelled to Connell to call 911. Jean rushed into the room and screamed out that she was dead because of the color she had turned. She started doing chest compressions and calling out for Candace. Connell dialed 911 and reported a child not breathing. She turned off the camera. It was about 70 minutes since Candace lay down to be wrapped in the blue flannel sheet. The sheet had a long tear from her trying to escape. Candace had no breath or pulse. EMTs intubated her and put her on a mechanical breathing device. Her pulse was returned and she arrived at Denver's Children's Hospital by helicopter. It was April 18th. By all accounts, Candace was dead. She had a heartbeat and was breathing from the respirator, but she was brain dead. Her pupils were fixed and dilated. Jean arrived at the hospital later that afternoon. She knew there was no way to bring Candace back and decided to donate her organs and cremate her. These arrangements couldn't be made so easily, as the hospital staff had been notified that there was police interest in the case. There would be an autopsy, which could very well conflict with organ transplantation. Additionally, there would be more than one county involved, because the events that led to her death happened in Jefferson County, but she would be taken off the respirator in Denver County. Denver's Children's Hospital also didn't have a forensic pathologist on staff. Candace remained on life support until transplantation teams were ready. The Jefferson County District Attorney's Office agreed to do the organ harvesting. At 9 the next morning, life support was turned off and Candace's organs were removed. Her stomach had an ulcer due to the prolonged use of life support. Her lungs couldn't be used. There is an active infection caused by vegetable matter that had entered the airway when she vomited during the rebirthing. Most of her heart was too damaged by the prolonged lack of oxygen to be usable. There were no traces of drugs in Candace's blood, but there was an undissolved, fragmented tablet of effexor in the stomach and esophagus. Her brain was found to be considerably swollen, and her brainstem had been damaged by compression. The pathologist, 
Dr. Gail Deutsch, stated that Candace, quote, died of cerebral edema and herniation caused by hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. Hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, or HIE, is a type of brain damage caused by lack of oxygen. It affects the central nervous system. Connell Watkins and her assistant were charged with reckless child abuse resulting in death and sentenced to 16 years in prison. The other two people who had held the pillows in the video were given 10 years probation for criminally negligent child abuse and sentenced to serve 1,000 hours of community service as part of a plea bargain. As a result of Candace's death, a law was instigated in Colorado and North Carolina that prohibited dangerous birth reenactments, and similar legislation was introduced in other states as well. Connell Watkins was paroled in 2008. Candace Newmaker died in terror and agony due to a series of very careless mistakes made by those who were meant to protect and help her. The current location of her cremated remains are unknown. Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned for the next Story from the Mortuary.